Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. So how many of you love getting out in the water? Well, my special guest today is not only a colleague, but also a dear friend that first introduced me to the joys of wild swimming, including in some very cold places. Like me, Suzanne is an ethnobotanist and knows a lot about some of really interesting wild edible plants, including some plants found in various aquatic habitats. She has written a fabulous new book called Wild Waters, a wildlife and water lover's companion to the aquatic world. So before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit more about Suzanne uh, Masters. She has published academic research on wildlife trade and has written features for the New York Times, the Guardian newspaper, BBC, and other outlets. She also works with distilleries and spas on ingredient selection and developing sustainable supply chains. In Wild Waters, Suzanne reveals the connections between people, wildlife, and wild landscapes in Britain and Ireland. It's so great to see you today, Suzanne. How are things going? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you. And, you know, I just loved your book. It's not only just, you know, gorgeously written, but also beautifully illustrated um, with with amazing uh, drawings of of these different aquatic habitats. And one of the, the habitats that has fascinated me um, for a long time is that of the kelp forest. So what can you tell us about kelp? What is kelp, first of all, and where do we find it? So kelp are a group of seaweeds and uh, they're sort of within the seaweeds get grouped by green, red, brown. Uh, and you also have some things that we call seaweeds, but they're actually vascular plants. So they're more familiar if you're on land, but the seaweeds are quite different. They don't have roots and veins in the way that we're used to plants on land having. And the kelps, um, they're quite big. Uh, so some of them uh, can be, fully grown, they'll be taller than me. Um, and the ones we have around Britain and Ireland, they make uh, kelp beds. So they'll grow really densely and abundantly. And you'll find other forms of life within them. But if you're paddling over them on a stand-up paddleboard or a kayak, or if you're swimming over them and popping down to look around them, the feeling's a bit like an underwater forest in that you've got these tall, very obviously dominant kind of organisms, but then amidst them, you get all other kinds of life in amongst them. And we've got uh, we've got sort of a few main species. Um, down south, we have fur bellows, um, and we also have a bit of cuvie kelp. And coming over from the Mediterranean Sea, which is a bit warmer, we started getting golden kelp moving in. Uh, and then also you've got sugar kelp, um, which is kind of long, broad ribbons. Uh, and it does actually have a, a sweet flavor. When it dries, you'll see this powdery white stuff on it, uh, which is mannitol. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit of diversity in the kelps and the, the forms a kelp forest takes. But cuvie kelp's really interesting because it has this long 
um, stipe, which is a bit like the trunk on a tree. If you were kind of trying to understand what kelp's like, it has a hole fast that kind of clings onto the rock and looks a bit like that with some modifications. And then you have what looks like a trunk, which is the stipe coming up. And then you have the, the blades. So that's where you see a lot of the movement in the water. And with some of the kelps, the stipe is quite smooth. So you don't get many other things growing on it because it's quite difficult to get a purchase. And also some of the kelps, they shed their their blade, their stipes, um, and they don't live very long. So maybe they live five years or something. But cuvie kelp can live for up to 20 years, and it's got quite a rough stipe. Okay. So you'll actually get lots of other seaweeds growing off the side of it. So it's really like in a rainforest when you see epiphytes growing on the branches of trees. Um, so kelp have these really, really rich layers of life just inhabiting them. Uh, and that's, that's so cool. You, that's even before you get into all the animals. So you get like certain kinds of crabs that like to live in the hole fast and that's, that's where they live. And you get uh, sort of fish nurseries. So, you know, open water is quite a scary, dangerous place if you're a little fish or juvenile fish. So often they'll, their eggs will be laid or juvenile fish will, will kind of aggregate and hide around seaweeds because it gives them shelter from predators as well as being a place where they can find things to eat. It's um, amazing. So what depth do we usually find kelp at? Is it closer to the shoreline or can it be, can they grow kind of in, in deeper waters? So they need sunlight uh, to be able to photosynthesize. Uh, so in water that's a bit more murky and churned up, uh, you don't get them growing so deep. And there's some kelps, um, so cuvie kelp, you can see it sometimes at the low tide line and you know it's not um, verbellas because cuvie kelp's got, it's got like more of a bend in its type when it's a bit high and dry because the tide's dropped. Um, sugar kelp, you don't really find it above the tide line. It's just that little bit deeper. It doesn't like to be exposed so much. And, you know, around the coast uh, here in Dorset, uh, and certainly of some islands around Scotland, you can just kind of almost be knee deep in the water and you can pick some nice fresh kelp. But out at St Kilda, so St Kilda's an archipelago of islands right out towards our west, so on the way towards America, and there's deep ocean around there and the water's really clear. You know, you haven't got rivers from land bringing down sediments. There isn't so much sand churned up. Uh, there's not any pollution out there because no one lives there full time now. Um, the last villages were evacuated uh, in the 1930s. And out there, you can get kelps growing at kind of 40 meters deep because the oh, water wow. there, they can get the light that they need. That's fascinating. So you mentioned, you know, going out and collecting kelp. And what what do people collect kelp for? Do they use all different types of kelp or are there certain ones used for different functions? So with seaweeds, um, you know, they have different textures and forms. And for every kind of seaweed, the form it takes, it's best used in terms of as, as a food 
it's kind of in relation to its form and shape. So some of them are quite tough and you wouldn't eat them raw and you wouldn't be putting them in salads. Like sea lettuce is quite dainty, can be sort of one cell thick. So it's really fine. You can just chop it and eat it. Whereas kelps are quite, they're quite thick. You would struggle to even bite a piece off because they're kind of tough and rubbery. But what you can do with kelps is um, you use some of them, they add a lot of umami flavor, especially sugar kelp, um, because it's got that sweet, salty combination going on. So you'll put a bit in a stew, hmm. or if you're doing pit cooking, so you know where like if you dig a pit, burn wood in there, get down to the coal bed, and then you put food on it, then cover it and leave it to cook over several hours. Uh, sugar kelp especially is great for pit cooking because you've got this long, sort of can be, couple of meters long band of seaweed and you wrap it around if you've got some venison or fish or something that you don't want to make contact with the coals and you want to keep mm. some some moisture in with you whatever you're cooking so you just wrap it around like a bandage lay it on the coals and then when you unearth it it's it's kind of really nice and moist it hasn't got ash or anything on it and it's got a bit of that nicely salted sea flavor on it too so it's oh it's, nice it's kind of tasty and a useful cooking tool. It's like a very natural version of sea salt <laughs> with using that. That's great. That's great. And now I also heard that there's another way that sugar kelp is being used in the industry. Um, and I heard it had to do with a certain type of gen. Is that right? <laughs> it does. And um, so I think it's about seven years ago. Uh, I was asked to work on ingredient selection for a distillery up on the Isle of Harris. So I went up there and I looked around and I looked at the really the long history there of people using seaweed as a resource because the island is fairly isolated. Um, so seaweed's, seaweed's important there and it's used uh, in crofting, uh, which is small scale farming and in order to fertilize the soil, people were getting seaweeds that would get washed up on the tide line. You put it on and it's a great fertilizer. Um, it also forms where this, the seaweed, in the crofting landscape, you get these kind of flowery meadows. It's short grass, lots of flowers, because in crofting you, you rotate between the animal grazing, you know, growing potatoes where you're plowing up the ground so you're not getting in shrubs taking over. And then you'll have fallow years as well, where it's not great, you know, it's left to rest. And you'll get these really flowery meadows called maca. And that's quite rare. It's rarer than rainforest. Uh, you only get it in small areas of Northwest Ireland and Scotland. Uh, and it's formed partially because of that fertilization of the soil with the seaweeds. So, you know, seaweed was really important to the island and there was also there's a big legal case between the Isle of Harris and the Isle of North Uist, which is just south. And they had a court case over a rock that was in between them. No one actually wanted the rock. What they wanted was the right to harvest the seaweed that was growing just below the surface around that rock because it was so valuable. So seaweeds were really important. And also working with the distillery, we were looking at, well, how much... You know, this isn't small scale, this could be 20,000 liters of gin a year. So that's a lot of ingredients. So you don't mm. want to start with something 
you know, from an island or small area, make that part of your branding. And then after a couple of years, um, you can't make enough for your product or you can't get enough for your product. And also you don't want to damage the, the ecosystem that's around, you know, your, your identity and the distillery. So seaweed can be harvested really sustainably if you hand harvest. So it's like going into a forest and selectively cutting out individuals. So you would take individual blades and sugar kelp, if you don't cut it all the way to the bottom, if you cut the upper section, the bottom part will carry on growing. So you can harvest sugar kelp, but the integrity of the forest is, is maintained. So, oh, nice. so it's, it's not like, um, you know, it, the analogy would be like, if you went in and got timber by felling every single tree in sight, that's not sustainable. You know, if you do that with a forest or if you do it with an underwater forest, you know, a kelp bed, but if you go in and selectively harvest mature individuals, you can carry on doing that indefinitely because the integrity of the kelp bed is still there. So it's sustainable. And also, you know, always with distilleries and spas and things, there's, you know, people want to have something new and different as well as on the place. And no one was using seaweed and gin at all at the time. There were a few now. Um, so I was thinking, yes, seaweed, sugar kelp, um, and I knew there was sugar kelp around there. And also the, the flavor is quite soft. And with whiskey, uh, so the distillery wasn't actually built. There's no physical structure there. And, but they knew what the whiskey was gonna taste like because you actually, you think about what barrels you're gonna use and you buy them in and you mix bourbon and sherry barrels and you know quite well what the flavor profile of the whiskey will be. So I'd seen the flavor profile for the whiskey that wasn't made yet. You know, the, the, <laughs> okay. hard lot. there's no whiskey, there's no spirit even. There's no <laughs> barrels there yet. You know, they just had their shopping list for barrels. So I knew the flavor profile of the whiskey and um, to try and connect with that, I mean, the gin matched that softness that was projected to be in the whiskey so that it would be a natural partner with the whiskey, which was yet made <laughs> <laughs> that yeah that's a really common kind of trend though right a lot of new distilleries will start with gin and as as a more rapid to market product and then move to whiskey because it takes more yeah. years to age what's, yeah. what's the name of this particular sugar kelp infused gin uh this one's the isle of harris gin <laughs> Isle of Harris gin. So yeah. foodies out there, if you want to taste a really unique uh, gin, this is one that's got some lovely sugar kelp in it. <laughs> so a bit of the sea along with your drink. Um, well, let's talk about some other aquatic um, creatures. One I, I, I wanted to touch on is one that I think many of the listeners have probably tasted at some point, um, water mint. Uh, what, is, what is the deal with water mint? Why does it taste a little bit different from the mint you might buy in the shop, like a, like a peppermint or spearmint? Okay, so I did I did a little rummage in my winter garden. So uh, this is the south coast of England, but it is December. So things are kind of tuckered down for the winter. But even so, I did have a little bit of spearmint. It's quite um, little. Oh, look at that. Yeah, okay. And then um, I also yanked out of my pond uh, I did pull out a piece of water mint. So 
what you can see is it's dripping um uh-huh. the leaves now in its winter form so it's cold so it's really hunkering down and the the water surface is about here so it's barely coming out where mm-hmm. in summer it can be sort of knee high or more because it grows oh, really? up so this is this is my water mint growing in the ponds like this kind of really tucked tuck down for the winter and also you know sometimes you'll get an air frost but the water isn't going to freeze because it's got more latent energy so it takes a lot colder temperatures to freeze so it'll actually carry on growing and making fresh fresh green growth just underneath the surface of the water through the winter um and this one um even just touching like this i haven't broken a leaf at all um but it's really smelling incredibly strong um this is because the, these these leaves growing along the water they're sort of when you brush against them they they release a lot more aroma um whereas this spearmint there's a leaf on the spearmint is quite it's actually quite tough and you can see there something's been eating it uh, <laughs> even this spearmint growing in my garden one of the reasons you know supermarket mints or grocery store mint doesn't taste the same is because the stuff growing out here has environmental pressures and in this case this is some insect damage they've been chomping and so much of the flavor profile of plants comes from it's it's their array of defensive weapons against things eating them um to protect them from intense uv light um water mint doesn't do this because water mint grows in very damp ground or running water so um you know water mint isn't, doesn't really grow in places where it completely dries out but some plants uh some of the chemicals they make are cooling so it's a bit like sweating when it's hot they can release volatile oils and cool themselves mm-hmm. so one of the reasons supermarket mint tastes so different to water mint is because the environmental pressures that it's lived under and the other reason i'm going to show you a different species of mint again so the spearmint is mentha spicata the water mint is mentha aquatica so those names are quite easy to remember and then here i have it's quite dainty this is what you know a lot of people call corsican mint and it's really really um kind of really tiny yeah tiny uh-huh. it's just it creeps along uh so this one's mentha requiemi um and this so these are three entirely different species and you know alongside the differences you see in the leaf shape what you're also getting is you're getting differences in in the chemical the chemical composition on the basis of they make different volatile chemicals within themselves or they produce them at different concentrations when you compare different species together so all of these mints smell minty this one the corsican mint if you do get it and you smell it if you've ever raided you know the the unloved bottles in a on a shelf of liqueurs or things this is going to remind mm-hmm. you of creme de menthe and it is a species that is used <laughs> in creme de menthe in um, creme de menthe okay yeah. wow spearmint is um you know it's 
it's quite a toothpastey smell <laughs> because that paste okay yeah because you know we think of that as that like clean fresh minty smell water mint is is different it's, i mean when you rub it it's just so much more aromatic and it's um it's kind of almost a bit uh fruity so oh, it's probably got it's probably got more carbone in it than the spearmint and mm. it's also in the summer it's winter smells a bit different but in the summer it's almost a little almost floral which is oh, that. interesting yeah. yeah yeah so they you know all of these three are edible you there are some mints that you shouldn't eat so um penny royal is thought to be hepatoxic so that's damaging to your liver um Ooh, liver mm -hmm. yeah and that's mentha um mentha pulegium i don't have to picture the word to pronounce it pulegium um mm -hmm. and that's that does grow in damp meadows here but it's quite rare so you're unlikely to pick it by accident um but yeah so mints are kind of a lot of them are very tasty a couple you have to be careful with <laughs> yeah that's great well you know when you're talking about the kind of supermarket grocery chain um version of mints that are sold they're almost like overly pampered these are these are grown in very pampered conditions so not out dealing with you know herbivores or insect predation mm -hmm. or other pests that you know get them really pumping up those defense compounds that give it those lovely volatile um aromas and flavors yeah, yeah. Um, cool. I mean, so if you buy if you buy mint from a supermarket in a pot um mm -hmm. you leave it on your windowsill just forget to water it for a couple of days like push it to the brink and then water <laughs> it at the last minute you know make sure it gets the sun beating down on it and uh Give it, give it a couple of weeks of uh, not pampering and it'll get tasty. <laughs> there you go. I'm very good at abusing my house plant. So I'll have to try that with, <laughs> with, with the mint. So I know one of your other gifts, Suzanne, in addition to like really getting out and exploring the natural world is you have really an amazing palette for, for ways of preparing these wild foods as either beverage ingredients or foods. What is your preferred way to consume um, water mint? Oh, water mint. Do you know, it makes a great, a great mint to loot. <laughs> ah. really yeah, yeah. Um, just because of the, the kind of almost floral note of it, it's, it's, so, it's so aromatic in the glass. And of course, if you don't want to uh, drink alcohol, you can actually, instead of using a bourbon, um, over here I use, I usually use scotch whiskey, but <laughs> there's not much exciting bourbon here. Um, you can use a little bit of um, cold iced tea, just, like just a dash, mm. and, then, and then kind of substitute that in for the whiskey, and it will just kind of work nicely with the flavors because you get a bit of astringency from the tea. Um, mm. Both are good. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's great. So mint juleps or a teetotaler version with uh, with iced tea. I like that. That's great. <laughs> well, let, this brings me on to another um, another food, but we're going to jump over to some other kinds of creatures. And these are kind of slippery, slimy creatures that most people, I think today, probably don't think of as food, but historically were hugely important at, as a local food source. Let's talk about eels, European eels. What did you learn in your research for the book about these eels do you know i have to say before even before i wrote the book eels are they're just such fascinating fish um i remember seeing one i was walking the dog uh down at virginia water so near london london and um i saw something go across the grass and i was like what that's such a monster snake oh my <laughs> god and then i kind of looked more and I realized it was an eel. So sometimes eels, when they're following their migratory paths, that there isn't water there. If it's damp, they'll glide across it. Um, wow. Yeah, they're just amazing like that. And, you know, eels have been really important in England for a very long time. In fact, even as far back as medieval times, eels were serious because you could pay your rent in eels sticks of eels so once wow. you would catch eels and dry them and then you, you would put them on a stick so one stick was a lot more than one eel and um we know this because you know the the you know the the sort of landed gentry the people in power um you know they were very careful about keeping records of what their peasants owed them uh, <laughs> so now we know, like you can actually you can actually look back and see you know poor Owain had to pay like 20 sticks of eels rent for his health plus some money as well. I mean, so eels were really popular as a food and we actually ate too many of our eels um, because if you look at the sort of archaeological remains, the, the size of the eel bones you find in waste heaps and things was actually getting slightly smaller. And often that's an indication mm -hmm. of a sustainable harvest because you're not you, you're not getting individuals living to maturity. So we started shipping in eels from Holland and the Dutch started bringing us eels. And you can look at you know maps of London from 1600s and on the map, you know, there's drawing city of London, there's boats in the river, and you can even see some of those boats underneath it's written, you know, eel boats. So they were really a feature of the landscape here and the you know someone even invented a kind of barge where the there's a hold and there was water maintained in it so the eels could be brought over fresh because that was even more delicious and more what people wanted mm -hmm. um, so eels have been very popular and then also in again in london we had the pie and mash shops so it was eel pie and mashed potato um not <laughs> Partly, uh, you know, taste change, but also uh, we really don't have that many eels now. Um, and it's not just because we've been eating them. Uh, so all eels, uh, even the farmed eels, are born out in the Sargasso Sea. So that's way over towards the Caribbean. And wow. no one's managed to get eels to breed and then managed to get sort of the elvis, which is baby eels, to live more than a few days. They're really, really 
wild and we haven't worked out how to farm them. So you can buy eel um, to eat and it'll be, you know, often if you talk to the supplier, they'll tell you what's farmed. But every farmed eel has been a baby eel that was caught from the wild and then moved into the farm. And there's, you know, eels, because they're migratory, they don't live in one country. Um, and in some countries, uh, they're legally allowed to be harvested. Uh, and in some countries, you know, some countries moving to saying, well, it's not really working out for the eels. And it's not just because we eat them. The problem is how we've changed our water courses. So if you remember the eels, they breed in the Sargasso Sea, but, but that's really far away. And they live in our lakes and rivers until they're ready to breed. So they have to get there. And, you know, with dams, um, that creates a barrier. So they can't, you know, when they're young eels looking for their ancestral river, go and live in they can't get up there and then also if they are up there depending on the water height um there might not be enough water for them to reach all the way back to the sea and you know even you know hydroelectric dams there, there are problems because the eels get caught in the machinery um and they don't they don't survive that necessarily so one of the ways that eels are people are trying to help them is by creating pathways for them so where there are um power generation schemes looking at well how can we stop eels slipping through into machinery and also can we provide you know ladders and channels for them to travel up because they're actually um listed by the iucn as, as i think they're endangered um critically mm. endangered. so they're actually and that means that if things don't change the trajectory of their population if it continues the way it has you know, in a generation, there won't be eels. So we have to actually try and help them. And a big part of that is not, it's not just thinking really carefully about eating them. It's also undoing the changes we've made to the landscape, which has been really unfavorable for eels. Yeah. What's interesting with like the little animal crossings, but an aquatic animal crossing is a neat idea. And I'm just thinking of like the types of foods where I've encountered eels before. And I think really I've only seen eel on the menu um, from places that I've eaten recently, just in sushi as like a small bit in a sushi roll or an eel sauce. But again, I never realized that they were actually born wild and then farmed that's that's a yeah. challenge yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well another another interesting creature you write about in your book is something called a snake lock anem anemone am i saying that right <laughs> what do those look like are, are those migratory or do they kind of stay in one place they pretty much stay in one place when they're adults so they, they attach themselves to rocks um they're squidgy all over. Uh, you know, kind of imagine a jellyfish, but stuck on a rock with the tentacles going up. They're okay. not just, they're fairly closely related. Um, but anemones, the snake looks anemones, you get two forms. So you get one where it's kind of more beige gray colored. And then you get some where um, you can see the, the, the body and the tentacles are quite greenish. Mm -hmm. um, and those ones that are green, they have a lot more green fluorescent protein in them. Um, so 
you might know green fluorescent protein. Oh, right. Like the, the scientific tools, GFP. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. This yeah. is our glow in the dark kind of stuff we use in science to track how different genes work. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, and it was originally for science, it was extracted from a jellyfish, uh, from a crystal jellyfish. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, that green fluorescent protein is, is present in a lot of snidarians, which is the kind of larger group in the and then using jelly, you know, within, um, and the green fluorescent protein, you know, it's a tool. So it tells you like if gene is being expressed because you can see it because you just expose, expose it to UV light and you get fluorescence. So you can literally just turn the lights off, you know, get it to fluoresce and you know what you expect it to be in there is there. So they're really part of medical, you know, medical treatments actually, um, and our understanding of bodies and cells without green fluorescent protein would probably be quite different still. Um, and that's why uh, for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, uh, I think in 2008, um, that was awarded for work on green fluorescent protein. That's, that's how important it is to, to us. <laughs> you know, from these little squidgy creatures. Um, but they, they've also had other uses as well, um, more niche uses. So in Spain, after the Spanish Civil War, uh, the, the sort of availability of food was restricted by government policy on agricultural production. And, and also uh, there was food rationing as well. And so people, people were kind of looking for food. And one of those foods of necessity was the snake locks and enemy. You can just go pull them off the rocks and dust them with flour and then deep fry them. And then you've got something that fills up your belly and it's got, you know, a bit of nutrition in it. And the other place um, in the Mediterranean where they've been eaten is uh, Sardinia. So, you know, we think of Sardinia as an island uh, and you assume big kind of fishing cultures attached to islands. But actually not not always in Sardinia, actually, historically, a lot of the people who moved there were farmers and they were, you know, up in the central mountains, away from the sort of mosquito and malarial plains and lowlands. Mm. Um, so they weren't necessarily going out and fishing, but if you're on a shoreline, one of those kind of literal foods, so that's uh, kind of easy to find along coasts is, reach in, pull them out, and then, um, you know, deep fry them and eat them. (laughs) (laughs) In some places, you know, they've been a food of necessity or, you know, often what sort of people looking at these kinds of foods will call them famine foods. Um, You know, things that people eat when they're like really desperate. Although if you go to restaurants uh, around Cadiz, you'll you'll find snake books and enemies they're on a fancy menu now. Oh, wow. Okay. And then yeah. sort of, they were kind of like a practical food. Like, uh, you know, you can just grab it. You don't need a boat or anything. You don't need sailing skills. You know, it's accessible. We'll, we'll take it. Interesting. That's one I definitely haven't tried before. <laughs> well, uh, I guess one last topic I want to jump into um, mm-hmm. before we wrap up is, you know, 
what is your advice for people that are interested in exploring more of these aquatic habitats? How do you do so, you know, not only in a way that's safe for you, um, but also safe for the creatures that you're encountering? Like, how do we do this in a, in a safe and kind of non-impact way? So, I mean, for creatures, basically, you know, you're going to get better at watching things without disturbing them because you start to realize that the distance you want to keep is probably bigger than you initially think. So if you're looking at coastal birds and then they all fly up, they're flying up because you disturbed them. So then you start to gauge, actually, I should stay further back and use binoculars. And, mm. you know, things like seals on land, they're really um, vulnerable. They can't move that easily. Um, so if you have a dog with you, your dog should be on the lead. And also with seals, um, you shouldn't go up close to them when they're on land. Now, when you're swimming, sometimes they'll come to you. Hmm. You know, they'll kind of, you're swimming along and then you're looking down and along the bottom, there's this seal going underneath, looking up at you, like eyeballing you. From the <laughs> so, you know, they just kind of like, swoop past but in that case you know they're, they're such you know elegant competent swimmers they're way faster than you and their maneuverability is amazing so they're feeling you know they're not feeling vulnerable but they are curious so they're popping down taking a look you know but they're <laughs> to move around so so it's you know you have to think about not cornering animals um not disturbing them at sensitive times. So, you know, for birds, that's bird nesting time. So here we have fulmers. And um, if you, the, the, the British Mountaineering Council, you know, reminds people where the key nesting places are on the cliffs um, and reminds people don't go climbing there. But if you do make the mistake of going climbing there and you disturb a fulmer in its nest, it will puke on you, really stinky. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deterrent. <laughs> you will not do that again. You will respect Fulmars because they let you know you don't do this to us. Um, but they shouldn't have to. So you should be careful around that. And, you know, also the flip side of that is for us, um, we breathe air, uh, not water. So we have vulnerability around water. And actually, you know, a lot of the times... Um, people get into trouble can be when they're not expecting to be in the water. So you're near, you can slip on a muddy path or, you know, you don't understand um, the local conditions. So here in England, we, the tidal range is quite big in some places. So um, certainly on the, the East Anglian coast and some sections of the Cumbrian coast, you can be on, what you think is sort of sandy beach and the sea is quite far away. But when the tide changes, it comes in really fast and mm. you can be quite far away from land and in very rapidly rising water. So that's where you, you need to talk with local people and, you know, know the tide times. And then, you know, it's so variable because here we don't have sneaker waves. Um, but you do get them in Oregon and California, I think Iceland as well. So a sneaker wave is when um, you can be along the seashore 
um, like 20 minutes or something and there's just small gentle waves you know and you'll see that bit of foam like the limit of where the water gets to and the sneaker wave will come out of nowhere and it can be like more than 40 meters further in so there's mm. just a big wave and that that's because um you know oregon and california and iceland there's really deep sea before the coast and and that seems to create these sneaker waves whereas here in britain we we don't have that because um you know we have a lock uh up in scotland Loch morag and that looks 310 meters deep. That's deeper than most of the sea around us. Like there's um, only some out towards St. Kilda where it's deeper. So our, our surrounding sea is quite shallow. So we don't, we don't get sneaker waves, but if there's a storm front, the weather forecast will often tell people, don't go along the beach edge taking photos of the big dramatic waves because they'll come and squash you too. <laughs> that's like, you know, they'll be on the forecast and that's sort of predicted. Um, where sneaker waves, uh, it's more about the landscape and being aware of that place and the kind of the seabed conditions that are offshore. So, and, you know, in both cases, it's that, uh, you know, local knowledge, talk to local people, um, look, you know, look up tide times, check weather forecasts, because also on rivers, you know, a river in full spate, because there's heavy rainfall, around you or heavy rainfall up in the mountains or upstream and then that's collected together and it comes down in a surge um you know a, a river on an average day can be calm and gentle but then when it gets into full spate it's a lot of powerful water coming down with debris um and with a lot of speed so it's also understanding that outside conditions aren't static so mm. you're checking you know, on a date, you know, even for me, my local beach, um, you know, I swim here all the time and go out on the paddle board and go along the seashore walking. But, you know, there are certain times when there's winds coming into the land. So winds from the south, bringing up the wave height, um, when I won't swim, <laughs> because I know that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that's such good advice. Just to be aware and like talk to people, figure out what the what the danger zones are. <laughs> that's huge. Well, I do want to leave with one last recipe. I asked this of many of my guests. You know, if you have a favorite recipe, maybe from an aquatic plant or or another plant, we can we can open it up because I know you have uh, a lot of really great uh, recipes that you could share. What's what's your favorite? Maybe for the season. For the season, oh, at the moment, uh, for the winter season, um, do you know, I, I have to say, every time you drink whiskey, there's actually an aquatic plant, a bulrush that's used to create the seal in the whiskey. Uh -huh. So I would say, you know, at this time of year where maybe it's a little cold, um, I would say if you have a little tot of whiskey, um, do a little toast towards the bulrush that has, that has actually, you know, because with whiskey, we always talk about the grain and the barrel, but there's this kind of quiet, unassuming bulrush that makes the barrel watertight. So, you know, a little toast to give thanks to the bulrush. That, uh, yeah, that's great. I like, I like that. I can, I will definitely toast the bulrush tonight. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming on the show. This has been really informative. <laughs> thank you. 
You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, We are in season four now of the show, and you can find this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and basically any podcast streaming service that you go to. Um, You can also find the video episode of of this um, episode and any of our more recent episodes from season three at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Thanks so much to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for all the amazing work they do. And thanks to you all, our listeners, for tuning in each week. Stay healthy out there. Toast the bull rush this weekend. And I'll see you later.